Unlike your ancestors, you didn't come to Mount Sinai. All that volcanic blaze and earth-shaking rumble to hear God speak. The ear-splitting words and soul-shaking message terrified them, and they begged him to stop. When they heard the words, if an animal touches the mountain, it's as good as dead, they were afraid to move. Even Moses was terrified. No, that's not your experience at all. You've come to Mount Zion, the city where the living God resides. The invisible Jerusalem is populated by throngs of festive angels and Christian citizens. It's the city where God is judge, with judgments that make us just. You've come to Jesus, who presents us with a new covenant, a fresh charter from God. He is the mediator of this covenant. The murder of Jesus, unlike Abel's, a homicide that cried out for vengeance, became a proclamation of grace. Thank you, Maria, for leading us uh, in the first part of our service. As you rightly reminded us, the theme of the first part of Hebrews 12 is running the race. And it was great the way in which that tied in with our sports camp last week. The second half of Hebrews 12 is is a bit of a preacher's nightmare. You focused rightly upon the, the prize and the goal at the end of the race. But actually it's a passage that bounces around all over the place at looking at different things. There's a hodgepodge of Old Testament references that don't seem to have much of a common theme. You've got a reference to a bitter roots in verse 15, which, which comes out of Deuteronomy chapter 29, the, the blessings and curses at the end of Deuteronomy. Then you go back to Esau uh, in Genesis, uh, turning down his birthright, forward to the giving of the law at that Sinai Exodus with a possible passing reference to the golden calf. And then that Sinai scene is, trans, is, is compared to uh, Mount Zion, uh, we haven't come to Mount Sinai, as Moses and the Israelites did. We've come instead of the heavenly Mount Zion, which again is described in detail, including a passing reference to the blood of Abel back in, in Genesis. Then you get a reflection from prophet Haggai, and then back to Deuteronomy again, with that reference to uh, God being a consuming fire, uh, and receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It goes all over the place. And if there is a unifying thing, I, I actually found it not in the prize we get at the end, but in the idea, perhaps, that we are all in this together. The previous image of running a race focuses very much on the need for individual efforts. And it could give rise to the incorrect impression that when it comes to living the Christian life, I'm the only one that matters. I'm running the race so that I can win and stuff everybody else. But in actual fact, nothing could be further from the truth. Baptist churches, and I'm glad of this, tend to put a big emphasis on the importance of being bound together in a covenant relationship with each other. So we are committed to watching over each other and to walking together, and I suspect the writers of the Hebrews would have approved of that idea. Because if we're running a race, we're all committed to getting each other across the finishing line. Not just me, all of us together. So Hebrews says we have a responsibility to try and coexist peacefully with everybody else. But more than that, we have to make sure that nobody misses out on or falls short of the grace of God. It shouldn't just be my concern to get myself across the finishing line and complete the race of faith that God has assigned for me. It's important that I try and get everybody else across the finishing line as well. And that's not a task that just applies to me as minister of a Baptist church, it applies to us all. In running the marathon that God has marked out for us, we all need to make sure that nobody else drops out or falls away. It's a bit more like the the Tour de France or a cycling 
uh, event where you have to get the whole, you know, the team works together, action after fact, to, to ensure a victory at the end. And that perhaps makes, helps make sense of the reference to a bitter root in Hebrews chapter 12, 15. It says, make sure that no bit root of bitterness grows up and thereby damages a lot of people. This reference to the bitter root in the Bible is found back in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 18, where the people of God are told to make sure that there is no one, no man or woman, no clan or tribe in their midst, whose heart turns away from the Lord their God to go and worship the gods of the other nations. Let no such behaviour take root among you and produce a bitter harvest, it says. The concern in Deuteronomy is that idolatry is infectious, it spreads. One person falling away, one family or clan going off the rails, carries the threat of dragging everybody else down with them. So the whole community is called to be vigilant and to make sure this doesn't happen. In the same way, the Hebrew readers of this letter are called to take care that no one in their midst misses out on the grace of God. Because when one person gets it wrong, that affects not just them, but everybody else. Rather like one apple, one bar- apple in a barrel going bad and spoiling all the rest. If one person in the church goes off the rails, if one person in the church falls by the wayside or commits a sin, it doesn't just damage their life, it damages everybody else around them as well. In the grief and the sorrow and the pain that that brings, the damage it brings to God's reputation, the harm it causes to the church. So while each of us individually has to give an account of ourselves to God, we are all called to support each other, to be there for each other, to watch over each other, to take care of each other, and to try and make sure that we all stay on the straight and narrow. So that we all complete the race together without anyone being diverted by sexual misadventures or getting caught up in worldly affairs. Esau is held up as a bad example for this purpose. Jewish tradition has it that he didn't marry wisely. His wives were bad news. They're portrayed as being women addicted to fornication and lust, which presumably is how they led him astray in the first place. Many of you will know the story of how Esau came home starving hungry one day from working in the fields. And he agreed to sell his rights as firstborn son to his devious brother in exchange for a bowl of meat stew. Jacob was the stay-at-home lad. He was, he was the mummy's boy. He didn't like going out and, and hunting and doing all those kind of manly things. He was quite happy just to stay home in the kitchen and cook and prepare nice food and stuff. His brother came starving hungry. He said, give me some of that food. And Jacob said, well, you know, negotiate, you know, what we're prepared to give you for it. Let me have your birthright, said Jacob. What use is my birthright to me if I starve to death before I had it, said Esau? Yes, you can have it, I just want some stew now. He was a man driven by the immediacy of his appetites. And his wives clearly tapped into that in terms of leading him in one direction, and his brother took advantage of it as well. Esau later, later bitterly regretted his folly, his stupidity, his readiness to give in to his appetites, but it was too late, Hebrews says. There was no way back for him. He'd signed away his birthright, he'd signed away his, his privilege as firstborn son, though he begged in tears to have it back again, he had to live with the consequences of his decision. And the writer of the Hebrews wants to drive this message home, don't let that happen to anybody else in your church. Don't let anybody go off the rails like Esau did. See to it that no one ditches the grace of God for casual sex or fast food. Weigh in the balance what you have to lose against the brief enjoyment you will gain 
and keep your priorities right. Remember what God has given you, the value and importance of that. Don't exchange it for something that will be gone in a matter of moments. Keep each other on the straight and narrow. Make sure nobody follows other gods and so damages the church in that respect. Make sure nobody ends up like Esau, who just follows appetites and was uh, lost what he had as a result of that. Then there is this lengthy comparison between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Mount Sinai is a really fearful place. It's portrayed a bit like Mount Doom out of the Lord of the Rings, those of you who've read the book or seen the film. A place terrifying enough to leave even Moses, a man of God, trembling with fear. The mountain, Sinai, symbolises the holiness and the wrath of God against human sin. The implication being, if you fail to attain the grace of God, this is the place you're left with, a place of judgment. It is a place where the law comes without grace, and where law comes without grace, the only outcome of that can be judgment. If you've watched Les Miserables, that is is symbolised by Inspector Javert, the policeman who knows nothing of grace, acknowledges no possibility of forgiveness. All he has is the law and the requirement that the law brings judgments. And he cannot understand or comprehend the idea of mercy or of grace or forgiveness. It just doesn't connect with him. And there's a sense which because the law demands judgment, the law demands death, if he can't catch the man he's after because the man he's after is a man of mercy, then he himself has to die. Judgment without mercy is a terrible thing and that is symbolised by Mount Sinai, the place where the law was given, where the Israelites said, yes, we'll keep the law, and where they failed to do so. You haven't come there, says Hebrews, you've come instead to Mount Zion. Those who attain the grace of God get to Mount Zion, and Maria said that is totally different. This is the heavenly Jerusalem. This is the city of the living God. It is an altogether nicer place to be. It is populated by thousands upon thousands of joyful angels. There you find the church of the firstborn. There you meet God, who is the judge of everyone. There are the spirits of righteous people who have been made perfect. And there is Jesus, whose shed blood guarantees our salvation. You get to Mount Zion, and you might think you've died and gone to heaven. Well, of course, that's exactly what's happened. You have. The point is, if you hold the course, if you keep the faith, if you are held within the grace of God, this is your final destination. This is what it's all about. This is the prize. This is the thing that makes it all worthwhile. All the hardship, all the suffering, all the effort, all the trials, all the tribulation, all the discipline, all the turmoil, you get there. And as Paul says, the the glories that awaits us are infinitely superior to all the sufferings we know in this life. It will be worth it when you arrive. But, make no mistake, if you turn your back on this, you really have blown it. That's the point Hebrews wants to drive home. Look back at Mount Sinai, a place of terror and judgment to those who disregarded God when he spoke to them from the top of the mountain in a voice that shook the earth. That was just when he was giving them the law. The stakes are so much higher this time round. This time God doesn't speak from the top of the mountain, he speaks from heaven itself. And if you ignore him this time, you don't just reject his commandments, you reject Jesus, who is the only means by which we can be saved from our failure to keep the commandments. 
You reject Jesus, you're not just jumping overboard from the ship of God's salvation, you're puncturing the only life craft available to keep you afloat. You reject Jesus, you really are rejecting your one and only hope. God's grace saves to the uttermost. God's grace gets us to Mount Zion instead of Mount Sinai. But reject that grace, what hope is there? You've abandoned the only option available for your salvation. So don't do it. Recognise the eternal value of what God is giving you in Christ. Nothing else compares. At the end of time, when God gives the heavens and the earth a good shaking, everything that belongs to this world will be no more. And only what belongs to the world to come, only what is permanent, will remain. Those people who have been in insurance will know the old adage about how you decide what is classified as fixtures and fittings in your home and what is classified as contents. If you turn your house upside down, everything that falls off or falls to the ground, that's contents. Everything that stays where it was, that's a fixture and a fitting. When God turns this world upside down, everything that is temporary, everything that is not of value, everything that is not eternal, will fall off. Only what is eternal, only what is of his kingdom, only what is put in place by God will remain. So weigh up the alternatives. When you choose something else in place of God, recognise that the option you choose in place of God is something that is temporary and not permanent. The only things that remain are those things that cannot be shaken. So don't swap what is of eternal value for temporary rubbish. As recipients of the kingdom that cannot be shaken, let's be thankful and worship God with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire, says Hebrews. And that reference to God being a consuming fire goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 4. This is where, where Moses is, is renewing the covenant with the people. They, they, they've said to God, we're, we're going to be your people, we're going to keep your laws, we're going to obey you. Uh, they've worshipped the golden calf, they've wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and at the beginning of Deuteronomy, Moses says, right, okay, that was, that was all a bit of a disaster. This time, let's start again with God. These are the commandments again. Please renew your covenant with God before he leads you into the promised land. Don't forget the covenant he made with you. Don't turn away from God to worship idols because our God is a consuming fire. And Hebrews wants the, the people, the writer of the Hebrews wants those he's writing with to remember, yes, we need to stay true to the covenant God has made with us. As we anticipate leaving behind what is temporary and entering what is eternal, as we enter God's promised rest, let's not deviate. Let's not forget what it's about. Let's not forget God, let's not abandon God, let's not leave God for the worship of idols, because we are dealing with God who is a consuming fire. And everything that is not holy, everything that is not permanent, everything that is not of God will be consumed. We need to be wholeheartedly committed to God to get through to Mount Zion, to the place of grace, to the place of eternal life, to have our place amongst the firstborn with the church of those whom God has redeemed. Don't give Stay the course together. The chapter ends with that call as recipients of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let's be thankful and worship God with reverence and awe. And I wonder, a bit of me wonders whether that reference to being thankful acts as a kind of bracket 
that binds the whole passage together, because there's a play on words there that you miss in all the English translations. The phrase, let's be thankful, is an idiom. The literal meaning of the phrase is, let's have grace. And if there were any King James Version readers here, that's what it actually says in that translation. But the phrase, let's have grace, in verse 28, points us back to verse 15, where we are urged to make sure that no one loses out on the grace of God. The whole passage, arguably, is about making sure that all of us together hold on to the grace of God that is God's gift to us in Christ. The grace that gets us to the heavenly Mount Zion, the city of the living God, where we get to meet the angels, where we get to see those who've gone ahead of us, get to meet God himself, our master and our judge, our maker, the spirits of all those righteous people who've now been made perfect, and of course we get to meet Jesus himself, whose sprinkled blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That was up wondering, why introduce Abel at this point? It's just a throwaway comment, isn't it? I think the message translated it well in terms of trying to unpack that, about how the blood of Abel speaks grace to us, or the blood of Jesus speaks grace to us, whereas the blood of Abel spoke judgment. The blood of Jesus is good news. The shedding of his blood brings us salvation, whereas the shedding of Abel's blood brought only judgment on his brother who killed him. That we are saved by the shedding of Jesus' blood demonstrates the amazing nature of God's grace to us. We kill Jesus. We shed his blood. That blood is the means of our forgiveness and our salvation. His blood brings grace, not condemnation. That is an amazing truth when you stop and think about it. And yet... Hebrews in this passage doesn't just mention Cain and Abel, he also mentions Jacob and Esau. And I can't help wondering whether there isn't kind of, in the back of the writer's mind, perhaps an idea about brotherly love here, or perhaps the absence of brotherly love in the case of Cain and Abel and Esau and Jacob. After all, Abel was murdered by his brother Cain. A few verses earlier, he's referred to Esau, who was tricked out of his inheritance by his brother Jacob. Relationships between both sets of brothers were completely devoid of grace. That is not how it should be among us. We are people of grace. And that means we need to be there for our brothers and sisters in a way that Jacob and Cain manifestly weren't. In verse 15, we're told to see to it that no one misses the grace of God like Esau did. Esau missed out on the grace of God because his brother wasn't there for him. His brother wasn't taking care of him. His brother was only out to serve his own interests. Esau's brother was a trickster. We can't say, well, we're not like uh, Esau, uh, you know, because Esau missed out on the grace of God. We're going to model ourselves on Jacob instead, because Jacob was a slimy little toad. He was the one who tricked his brother and made him lose out on God's grace. Earlier in the letter to the writer of the Hebrews addresses his readers as brothers and says we are to see to it that none of us has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Jacob couldn't care less about his brother. He wasn't bothered that his brother turned away from God because he was only after his own interests. We must not be like either brother. We need to to make sure that we ourselves get our priorities right, in terms of not rejecting the grace of God for something inferior, we mustn't fall into the era of Esau. Equally, we mustn't fall into the era of Jacob either, who didn't care for his brother, who wasn't there for him, who wasn't there to support him and keep him on the straight and narrow. As brothers in Christ, we are bound to each other. We are in this together. 
Similarly, it talks about the blood of Abel uh, being surpassed by the blood of Jesus, and as much as the blood of Abel speaks judgments, a curse on Cain, his killer, who's driven away from the ground and made to wander under a curse because he killed his brother. The blood of Jesus speaks grace and salvation to us. But what about Cain, Abel's killer? When God comes looking for Abel, Cain, have you seen your brother Abel anywhere? I can't seem to find him. Cain's response is, am I my brother's keeper? He says, what, what business is it of mine what's happened to my brother? He's covering for his sin, obviously. But the point is that we can't ask, am I my brother's keeper? Because we are, actually. All of us are keepers of our brothers and sisters in Christ. All of us have a responsibility to care for each other, to support each other. When it comes to a brother or sister for whom Christ died, yes, you are their keeper. Yes, you are responsible for their well-being. Yes, we are responsible for keeping each other within the grace of God. As brothers and sisters in Christ, we are called to watch over each other, we are called to walk together in ways known and to be made known. As brothers and sisters in Christ, we are going to be different from Cain and Abel. We are going to be different from Jacob and Esau. Why? Because Christ is our brother. Christ is your brother. His shed blood speaks of your salvation. His is the gift of grace that is beyond measure in terms of its value. He is the one called to bring us safely across the finishing line to the prize which we will share. Our relationship with each other isn't modelled on Cain and Abel. It's not modelled on Jacob and Esau. It's modelled on Christ. Watch over each other. Keep each other in the grace of God. We are in this together. We are bound in the covenant as brothers and sisters in Christ to watch over each other, to walk together in ways known and to be made known. That is our calling as the fellowship of God's people. Let's pray. Lord, we're God, we're called to see to it that no one misses out on the grace of God. We're called to live at peace with one another. We're called together to have the grace that is your gift to us. We're called to support each other across the finishing line. Bind us together, Lord. Give us that deep-seated care for each other and support of each other. May there be no root of bitterness that grows up and causes damage to this fellowship. Lord, you have brought us in Christ to Mount Zion. And it's your desire that every single one of us there will be present in the church of the firstborn. Those redeemed by the blood of Christ. Whose spirits will be made perfect in his name. Lord, implant within us that deep desire and commitment that we will support all of us 
so that we all get there together and our reunion is something we celebrate in your presence. For your glory. In Jesus' name.